Good afternoon, this is Gary Kavner here on TRSI. I'm here today with my friend and colleague Michael Dwyer. Today, I'm sure many of you are excited to know, we will be talking very little about Catherine Zippone. Not at all, bar a brief mention in the very first item we talk about, Michael. Oh, I thought, I think the people love to hear about Dr. Zippone. You know, she's a lawyer, Gary, very fine lawyer. Uh, we're not sure if that's because she got an honorary doctorate of laws or for some other reason, but apparently, because Simon said she's a lawyer, so she must be a lawyer. Yeah, he did say that, but to my understanding, she's not. Um, you know, that's your understanding, Gary. Who are you going to believe? You or Simon Coveney? Me, I think, actually. But I suppose for your mental health, that probably works out better. So The Independent had a uh, story, went up a day or two ago, and it was talking about the Zabone row. And what it said was, the government aims to smother latest row about Sapone's job by simply ignoring it. That's the headline. And as you can imagine, the entire piece is about how this is a problem for the government, but they basically decided we just won't touch it, and we're kind of going to hope that the holiday means it just disappears. So, I want you to compare that, Michael, with a story I remembered from a couple of years ago that involved Michal Martin. And it involves Brian Crowley. Now, Brian Crowley, for those who can't remember, was a Fianna Fáil MEP, and then he was an independent MEP. He uh, said he wasn't going to run for re-election in 2019 due to health issues. He was famous when he was an elected MEP because he had missed, I think, every vote. Oh, that's pretty good going. Yeah, and man has serious health concerns, and apparently he thought he was doing better when he stood for election in 2014, went downhill, missed everything, didn't stand in 2019. He came under a great deal of pressure to resign. Fianna Fáil wanted him to basically step out of the way so that they could, you know, get someone uh, a bit more to their taste into the position. Because of that falling out with Martin, Crowley joined... Uh, a group called the European Conservatives and Reformists, who are a Eurosceptic, centre-right political grouping in the European Parliament, although some of the, like, Vox is a member. There are populist members who are kind of difficult to put in a left-right axis, and, I mean, there are people who consider Vox far-right, so, you know, you can take what you want on that. But he joined the European Conservatives and Reformists, it was kind of thought at the time pretty purely to piss off Martin because Fianna Fáil is a member of the Alliance of Liberals and Democrats. And they're a member of the Alliance of Liberals and Democrats because Fine Gael got into the party Fianna Fáil wanted to go into first. That's pretty fair. Now, it's also true that the Alliance, the, they're basically the Liberals uh, uh, of Europe. And when we say Liberals, we mean in the sense like Pretty well, like the Liberals in the Liberal Party in the UK, or say, are the 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 the, F, the Free Democrats in Germany. So one of the things they would be is pretty hot on the old progressive side of politics. They might have what well, some of them might have fairly dry economic policies, but they would be pretty hot on old-fashioned secular Whig kind of politics. A kind of politics, actually, I think Crowley expressed a discomfort with when Fianna Fáil were joining the LDE. And it would be worth pointing out that many at the time of the expressed 
positions of Fianna Fáil as established at Ardesh would not have been consonant with the kind of policies that would have been absolutely core to the the social vision of the European Liberals. Before I sorry, I think that the European Liberals are quite well funded. Yes, yes, that would be a fair thing to say. And I think that that wasn't completely irrelevant to the decisions that Fianna Fáil made. I mean, Fianna Fáil have been something of a, shall we say, a bit of a, a wandering tramp in the in the world of Euro- European politics, trying to find a suitable home because they couldn't get into the Christian Democrats because the Fine Gael were already in the Christian Democrats. And the position at the time was you couldn't have two parties from the same country in the group, although that has actually happened uh, in more recent years. They weren't. They were with the Gaullists. You're too young to remember this, but they were with the Gaullists for a while, and that kind of made sense. But after the, I think the Gaullists just kind of dissolved. They went away. They a bit like the Christian Democrats in Italy and. Fianna Fáil ever since have been wandering around looking for a home and I think they found a, a well-furnished home with the ALDE. So when Crowley joined the ECR he lost the party whip he was kicked out of Fianna Fáil. He did. And what I thought was interesting Michael is what Michal Martin said when Crowley was kicked kicked out. So Martin said that the ECR had was, was not in any shape or form compatible with the views of Fianna Fáil that there were absolutely no similarities, no common ground, no understandings. He said that Crowley had been a very good member of the party for more than 20 years, and he was very sorry that it had come to this. However, Michael, Mm. he said that fundamentally, a party has to stand for ideas, policies, and for principles. And Crowley's decision was simply a step too far. (laughs) Oh, God. Michal, Michal, Michal. It is, he is, he is a loss to the world of comedy, Gary. He really is. Policies, policies, ideas, and principles. They're the three things. If you ask most people, what characteristics do you associate with Michal Martin and Michal Martin in Fianna Fáil? Policies, ideas, and principles. Michael, you sound like you're trying to make some cynical point, like that Martin had wanted to replace Crowley for a good long time. And Crowley had just been refusing to go, so this was Martin just punishing him in some way. It's also worth it. Back in the good old days, Crowley used to get the votes in by the bucket load, by the barrel load indeed. And that always made him a tricky kind of a character to move. What I also thought was quite interesting, Michael, about this, is that when Crowley was removed from Fianna Fáil, the party didn't have a vote on it, because Martin said that the party shouldn't have a vote on it. It wasn't necessary to have the party have a voting on it. Now, of course, some people did complain because Crowley was so ill he couldn't physically attend the meeting at which he was being forced from the party, and that left a bit of a bad taste in some people's mouth. Yeah, some people thought it wasn't you know, not so classy. So, yeah, went to the parliamentary party. There was talk of a vote. Martin said there was no need of a vote because there was so much unity behind the idea that Crowley <laughs> should be removed. And uh, the parliamentary party agreed with that. I'm sorry, guys. You know, I come on. That is precisely, and, and I'm not actually drawing a parallel between the two, but you can't help but know that that is precisely the logic that would have been used 
by a Soviet-era Politburo or any former Soviet bloc country. You don't need a vote. Why would you have a vote? Everybody agrees. We all know everybody agrees. It'd be a waste of time having a vote. I mean, come on. Why bother? You know, get rid of it. We waste so much time and effort and money having elections. And we interrupt people's lives and we disrupt the television schedule. I mean, everybody knows. Why, why would you bother having a vote, for God's sake? Such a... Just a couple of troublemakers at the back of the room stirring up nonsense, looking for votes. <clears throat> in light of the Zipone thing and that we're just going to ignore it until it goes away, I thought I would remind people of 2014, when Michal Martin said that a party had to stand for ideas, policies and for principles. Send out a search party. Oh no, those children are dead, Michael. <laughs> Always the cheery note, Gary. Always the cheery note. So you want to talk about cheery notes, Michael? The House Foreign Affairs Committee. Ah, yes. So, the House Foreign Affairs Committee, which is the Foreign Affairs Committee of the American Congress, has released a minority report. Now, minority report is the committee is made up of Republicans and Democrats. And basically, if you are in the minority, if you don't control the committee, you can release minority reports. Sometimes they disagree with what the committee as a whole is saying because... If the Republicans control the committee, dem you know, they can do what they want. So the Democrats will release minority reports if they disagree with the committee, basically. This was not an act of disagreement. This was a continuation from a report that the Republicans had first published during the Trump administration, which had looked at the origins of COVID-19. And now they're in the minority after the, uh, the Biden election. But they have published a, an additional part of it, so it's it's a minority report. It may now be looked at by the committee. We may see uh, more movement on this. The thing about this report is that it looks specifically at the uh, lab leak theory, the idea that COVID-19 leaked from the Wuhan Institute of Virology. And it finds that on the preponderance of evidence, they believe that uh, COVID-19 was accidentally released from that lab. And they go in, it's it's quite a long report, it's about 83 pages long. I'll put a link to the full thing in the description of this podcast. A lot of the stuff in it I had heard about, not everything, but a lot of it. But the basic gist of it is that the lab was not up to spec. It was conducting dangerous research at levels of biosecurity that were not appropriate for it. And that it may have been exacerbated by a renovation of some of the lab's a hazardous waste uh, disposal units and air filtration systems but the basic gist of it they think it got out of the lab in September of 2019 that a researcher took it out accidentally that it then spread through the Wuhan subway system until it got all around the city and then in 2019 in October of 2019 there was a thing called the World uh, Military Games now the World Military Games are kind of like the Olympics but they are comprised of military athletes, military members. The report says the Chinese Communist Party didn't want the embarrassment of having to cancel the games at short notice. But at this point, they were aware that COVID-19 had leaked. But it's not clear how much they knew about its capabilities. So rather than cancelling the games, they instead held them with no spectators. Now that's all fine and dandy, but you were looking at nearly 10,000 athletes from over 100 countries and about 236,000 volunteers involved in the games, which the report said led to COVID-19 being carried back 
to multiple continents of the world. And it has a lovely little map of and some quotes from people who were competing at the games from different countries uh, who came down with mysterious flu-like illnesses that they say were most likely COVID-19. And then they devote a large amount of it to the argument that there has been a systemic attempt to cover this up and that that attempt has largely been concentrated or largely been conducted by officials of the Chinese Communist Party, but also academic researchers. Mm, that's a bit more spicy. Some of them in the Wuhan Institute of Virology, but some of them American citizens. And the basic gist of it is this, that the Chinese Communist Party has been systematically erasing evidence and attempting to spread disinformation about previous statements they had made and their researchers had made in order to distance themselves from it. Researchers involved in gain-of-function research have also gone down the same road in an attempt to distance their research from it. So, for instance, there, one, of the, uh, one of the scientists involved, a guy called Peter Daszak, he turned up last year because he put together an open letter that was published in The Lancet, which said that the lab leak was, a, from what I remember, he's definitely called it a conspiracy theory. I think he also called it a racist conspiracy theory. And this was signed by a number of scientists. It didn't mention that um, Dazak had direct financial links to Wuhan Institute of Virology. But what the minority report shows, Michael, is not only did he have direct financial links, but that that statement was put together after researchers at the Wuhan Institute of Virology asked him to do something to support them. So he was basically, he was invited to give his opinion on this in the expectation that they knew what his opinion would be. Is that what we're saying? The report is is saying that um, it, it actually has quite a lengthy piece on Dazak, but it effectively says that Dazak is a liar. And rather than just giving the right opinion, that Dazak has attempted to systematically mislead people about what is happening there and what he was involved with there. So they say there have been many instances of direct lies about the nature of the research that was conducted at the Wuhan Institute of Virology. They point out that people are saying that they never did anything involving bats or coronaviruses there, which can be shown to be simply incorrect. That, that research was done there. Were they doing gain-of-function research there? Now, we have adverted to this before in the podcast, just for listeners who may not have heard that, could just give a bit of an explanation of what gain-of-function research is in the context of these viruses. Gain-of-functioning basically involves manipulating a virus or, or some entity to make it worse, to, to increase transmissibility, virulence, to give it the ability to jump between different animals. The stated purpose of gain-of-function research is to create these very, very dangerous pathogens so that they can be studied and should such a pathogen ever arise naturally, we would then have research on hand where we could combat that pathogen. Now, when this started first, I did a little bit of reading around it, and on the face of it, it seemed to me kind of a reasonable thing to do. You want to be prepared. But the more you read around it more, Gary, the kind of scarier it gets, and the more sense one has that if you just let a bunch of theoretical scientists, or like, sorry, in this case, ex experimental scientists get on to do things, just because they sound kind of cool, or, oh, God, wouldn't, wouldn't, wouldn't it be great if we could do this? 
that you know it may not actually on the balance of things shall we say the outcomes may not actually be worth the the risks involved this particular game may not really be worth the candle you certainly want to be sure that you're dealing in every case and everywhere with a facility that had genuinely absolutely super tip top bio uh, security in place but after that isn't it, isn't it kind of an, an invitation you're you're when you're dealing with some some of the stuff they're dealing with which seems like super dangerous you're always going to eventually have a human being make a mistake I've I've noticed a difference between people I know who are like you know, science communicators and science advocates and scientists. The science advocates and people I know in that field are very much on the and these are the clearly defined benefits of the research. You know, this is what it's going to do, and these are you know all that lovely sort of stuff. The scientists I know are slightly more in a well, we're going to do it because imagine how cool it would be to do it. It's there. And that's good. Like, they're, they're passionate about it. And they're like, well, we're going to do it because it's never been done before. And then you run into stuff like gain-of-function research. And some of the reasons given for gain-of-function research, like, well, it will enable us to know more about how viral transmission works and, you know, all of these wonderful things kind of sound like you want to do it because it's cool and you just kind of need a reason for it. You're kind of retrofitting their justification onto the back end of the research that you just really want to do. Anytime this has come up, it's been controversial because you explain it to people and I think the average person you explain it to immediately has a sense of, and is that a good idea? <laughs> yeah, we, we've seen too many movies, maybe. That's the problem. But leaving aside just the specific, or shall we say, the, the, the wider question of gain functional research, this particular stuff with Wuhan... This has evolved from, this is all nonsense, this is all crazy, racist, conspiracy theory stuff, to the point where you've got a minority report coming out of the House, out of the, 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 uh, the Congress in the United States. But isn't it really, this is just another example of the way that COVID has created this odd football team approach to the kind, the, the, the bit of the science that you like. When it's my team, I cheer for these people. When it's my, because really, I wouldn't say this universally was true, but isn't there an element of the reason why people decided to be so scathing and so sceptical about the Wuhan thing, other than the fact that there may have been encouragement from the Chinese government so to do, the fact that dear Donald Trump seemed to be on the bandwagon fairly early, that there was something fishy going on in Wuhan. Yeah, it became politicised very early. The other thing, I think... So we talk about things like Trump and, and the Democrats and how that politicised it. Something I don't think is brought up quite as much is the extent to which the Chinese Communist Party used some of their soft power and economic connections to make it very clear that this was not to be a runner. And there are many people who would not, the public would not be aware of their links with China, usually because they're not direct links. They're to, you know, trade organizations or boards, you know, charities, things like that. But the message got through to quite a lot of people. And a lot of these people had direct financial incentives to uh, take that line and take it hard. The one, one thing interesting on um, gain-of-function research that the report brings up the report says they cannot show that 
if this was a natural thing or if this was genetically modified. What they do say is they can show that the Wuhan Institute of Virology was conducting gain-of-function research on coronaviruses and that most of that was focused on modifying the spike protein of coronaviruses that couldn't infect humans so they could uh, bind to human immune systems, say so they could infect humans, and that the stated purpose of that work was to identify viruses with pandemic potential and to create broad-spectrum coronavirus vaccine. So the standard thing with gain-of-function, they wanted to identify and create coronaviruses that had the potential to be pandemics so that they could develop vaccines for them that would work should one arise naturally. Uh, It also says that they were creating chimeric viruses, so they were putting together uh, other viruses to try and create one of these things. They point out that the the biosecurity level of the um, of what they had available to them was at times below what it was the lab was rated for. At times, they say the biosecurity level was equivalent to what you would find at a dentist's office. Yeah, it's not great, is it? No, and they point out that, um, as I said, that there was a renovation carried out in the labs just before these things are meant to have escaped, which involved. Um, renovating how they disposed of hazardous waste and the air filtration systems and they make the very astute point michael that if you're renovating those systems that would indicate that those systems were either turned off or were operating at decreased capacity and that for instance if the air filtration system was operating at decreased capacity it might be quite easy for something to get out of your lab when they start talking about chimeric viruses, that's when I start to really get, you know, I'm getting flashbacks to Dustin Hoffman in Congo or something. You're you're actually getting two viruses. The likelihood of which in normal in normal environment, these two viruses anyway, somehow evolving to a point where they act, they fused and became a, a single pathogen is just wildly unlikely. But they're in these labs creating chimeric viruses. I mean, really, why are you doing this, guys? Because it's cool. Yeah. <laughs> It'll be cool when it kills us all and eats us. I mean, that is pretty cool that you can do that. But it's one of those things where, like, it's cool, but is it a good idea? It's cool, but just don't tell the, don't tell the plebs that we're doing this because they might take our funding away. What are you doing? Well, at the moment, we're, we're working on developing viruses that will destroy the world's population in around 13, in somewhere between 13 and 60 days. Okay, okay, cool. That sounds like really good. Yeah, it's really exciting. But we prefer not to tell people because they might get nervous. And then it points out one thing. It points out that earlier people were saying that there were no signs of modification. Yeah. And they point out, not only is it possible to modify something like this and leave no trace at all, and they list when it was discovered and the scientists involved with it. But they can also show that by 2016, scientists working at the Wuhan Institute of Virology had the capability and ability to do that. Because that was the line I remember, that, which is why I initially was very sceptical about this amongst others, because the scientists are coming out saying, listen, we've looked at, we looked at the virus, we looked at the, the genome, we've sequences, and there is no sign in it that it has been in any way altered or adapted or changed or been interfered with. So this is a, just, it's a naturally occurring virus which has jumped species in this case, and that's something that happens every so often. It's just one of those things. But they seem to be suggesting in this report that actually the absence of 
an obvious example of interference, shall we say, or manipulation, doesn't actually mean that that doesn't, hasn't occurred, that it is now within their con their competence, their capability, to manipulate the sequence without without leaving a trace of that. Yeah, it's uh, it's quite something. And it, it touches on this, but it doesn't go into it at great length, because while they are often conflated, I think sometimes quite deliberately, the idea of COVID being genetically modified and the idea of COVID escaping from a lab are two separate things. It can be entirely natural and an escape from a lab. So the report anyway concludes that there's ample proof that the virus could have been genetically manipulated and that it is vitally important we fully investigate this hypothesis to determine if that happened in this particular case. But again points out that they can show that by 2016 researchers had the capability to do this leaving no trace evidence and so the only way to determine if this actually happened would be to secure documents from the actual Institute of Virology but it appears the Chinese Communist Party have destroyed some of those. And then you could talk about um, interviewing you know, some of the scientists involved, Michael. But the scientist we brought up earlier, Daszak. Daszak was the only American scientist who went over to, with the WHO's recent fact-finding mission to China, to try and determine the origins of COVID-19. Daszak wasn't on the list of scientists that were, China had to sign off on everyone who was entering. Daszak's name wasn't on it. China put him on the list. Right. And then they let him conduct the interviews. But in those interviews, he himself later admitted that there was always a communist um, party official there in the interview room itself. Yeah. You'd have to say also in, 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 the, in, in, uh, in regards of the, the evolution of this virus, um, its appearance in Wuhan and then its spread and the confirmation that it was now we're now in the midst of a pandemic the who hasn't really covered itself in glory and the the, the degree to which we can look at what the who is saying and not take some of the stuff at times with a pinch of salt i mean the who during the initial phases i remember we were talking about at the time michael there were many allegations going around that they were letting political pressure from china stop them from calling from certain things. I remember that they were coming out and saying about travel bans not working, stuff like that, very early on. Uh, and a lot of people mentioned that several people quite high up in the WHO were quite connected to the Chinese Communist Party, which made it quite interesting, actually, when the head of the WHO recently came out talking about the WHO report in China and said that he could only hope that China would be more open and transparent in the future and that there were still questions to be asked about the potential of it leaking from the lab. Yeah, I think the the, the position that they'd reached the la at, at the last juncture he was that not that they would confirm X, Y or Z had happened, but rather that they felt they could not exclude the possibility that it had escaped from a lab. Am I right in that? Yes, that was the basic gist of it. So anyway, the, the document, I'll put a link to the full thing because it's just too long of a, of a report to go into. It closed basically by saying that it was the opinion of the committee minority staff on the preponderance of available information, the documented efforts to obfuscate, hide and destroy evidence, and the lack of physical evidence to the contrary. And then they give the list of you know where it could have came from and stuff like that. It does also call for a ban on gain-of-function research until 
how prudent international standards can be applied, Michael. I think you are. Well, I suppose the fact is, it's this. You, 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 with something like this, Gary. Even if WHO and the UN and all sorts of people were to come out and say, "Listen, we're not going to do this anymore. We're going to ban it." How likely is it that it would actually stop? How likely is it that the Americans and the Russians and the Chinese and whoever would actually say, "Okay, we won't do this anymore," but in fact, just keep on doing it? One of the things there is that the American government did stop the funding of gain of function research, and actually, we there, we recently saw Anthony Fauci go in and tell one of the committees that they definitely had not directed funding towards Wuhan for the study of coronaviruses. That appears to be on the face of it false from what we know, but it wasn't direct payment. It went through a company called EcoHealth, I think, and there were dispensations you could get for it. The point that... I don't know. If this can be traced back to a lab leak, and if there was any gain-of-function work done on this, it will probably destroy that field, at least in the public view, for years to come. But also, it might be a warning to other countries that, okay, you can keep doing this quietly, but what if something else breaks out? What will that do to your country before it spreads? And depending on what you're working on, there can be some quite nasty stuff there. So, I don't know. There are always going to be countries, I think, that will look at it and go, well, if we can get vaccines or if we can get whatever from this, then that is uh, you know, an advantage. I think there is also a lot of downplaying about one of the reasons you might do this kind of research, which is the development of bioweapons. Well, of course, absolutely. No one seems to want to talk about that. And the use of such a weapon would be absolutely a war crime. But then we do live in a world with many nuclear weapons. We will see what happens now. The Biden administration, the Intelligence Committee, is still conducting uh, an investigation into this. We'll see what they come back with. But as Michael said, the lab leak theory has gone from racist to a conspiracy theory to something we can talk about to actually that kind of makes a bit of sense. But I think that was that was always roughly the position I think we took, Michael. Well, your your position was, I think, on the face of it now, I would say the more reasonable one, which was, listen, if you have an outbreak in, a, in a, any place in the world and people come and say, well, this actually could be as a result of an escape from a lab or it could be something to from You say, well, there's a possibility, but on the face of it, it's more likely that it's just... Uh, a naturally occurring phenomenon. However, if you throw into that mix the fact that the virus happens to appear in a city where they are actually, where there is a lab, and in that that is conducting research into this virus, and is also conducting research into uh, gain of function. Now, and separate, keeping those two things separate it may not be anything to do with gain of function, but the fact is they certainly were doing. Then it, it moves from the land of being a possibility to becoming something that you'd have to think uh, significantly improves the probability that this is something. Yeah, and then you had the American cables from years ago that were talking about how safety standards at the lab weren't being maintained. And then it began, we've had an outbreak of a virus that was being studied in a research lab, which we know was not particularly up to snuff on safety standards, that's not it breaking out in Dublin. That's a very particular thing. At that point, you'd have to say that, at the very least, it is more than reasonable to ask a series of searching questions about 
the lab and what was going on in the lab and to suggest that there may well have been a connection. Um, just on the face of it, that's perfectly reasonable thing to do. Whereas, in fact, what happened was this was dismissed. And yet, again, when we know the Chinese propensity and the propensity of the Chinese Communist Party to use soft power uh, to manage its image and the image of China abroad, and we know that the Chinese have been assiduous over the last number of years in gaining friends in not just in the world of politics and business around the world, but also in universities and in academia, that they have been, well, shall we say, making sure that they have people who are well disposed to them in universities and in research uh, units all over the world. You know, that's something you have to keep in mind. So moving on from that, Michael, to the bishops. The bishops, Michael, I've been told by multiple media sources, are willing to ignore the law. Well, oh, Gary, if it was only so simple, never is, is it? I thought, Michael, that the basis of a functioning judicial system was that people could tell what was a law and what wasn't. Well, as we have often pointed out here, Gary, uh, the, yes, a functioning judicial system, and not indeed, functioning justice would, would require that the citizen at any moment in time is, when he wants to, should be able to understand whether or not he is, in fact, breaking the law or not, that the law should be unambiguous, clear and intelligible to the man or woman on the clap of money bus. It shouldn't be that hard to know what the hell the law is. But we, where I don't think we're going to probably talk about it very much today, we may talk about it later in the week because it's an extensive report. We have talked before about the observations from the academic lawyers in Trinity about the fact that this government hasn't always been terribly clear on what in fact was law and what was just advice, what was guidelines, what was enforceable and what wasn't enforceable. And what was the times they were pretending things were law when they weren't law. Points where they seemed legitimately confused and there were points where I believe the Trinity academics said that they were being actively deceitful actively deceitful could you imagine gary but we're talking here about communions and confirmations and the fact that we have to we have to go all the way back to the beginning of july here gary when there were discussions about whether or not certain kinds of functions or social activities were going to be permitted under the relaxation of uh, of the uh, the 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 government guidelines and again you see there's the word isn't it Guidelines, we hear it all the time, the COVID guidelines. So what's going on here? Anyway, if we go back to the beginning, um, Leo Varadkar was asked a question about the ceremonies taking places in parishes across the country. And the Times was asked, would these be going ahead? And he said, they're off, unfortunately. And this was on the basis of the health advice. Now, the thing is that that isn't necessarily the perspective of Neffet. And as it was reported at the time, there was, quote, widespread confusion over communion confirmation ceremonies not going ahead on the basis that Neffet did not, in fact, ask for the ban. Dr. Tony Holohan said he didn't recommend this measure in his latest communications to the government, which saw indoor dining and events be postponed amid the ongoing threat 
of the Delta variant. Now, it is true that there was a recommendation from a Dr. Rose Fitzgerald, who was a specialist in public health medicine at the Public Health Midwest, I'm quoting here from the Irish Mirror, uh, to the Diocese of Cashel, Limerick and Killaloo, it said, it is our view that these ceremonies should be deferred until September due to the current high rate of COVID in the Midwest region. However, it goes on, there was never any warning issued for the whole country to postpone them. So, now, okay, that's, shall we say, the context from the, the beginning of this discussion. So, point one, it was the decision of the government, and it's fine, the government should be making decisions, not an effort. This is something we have criticised in the past, and which we'll, we will return to on the basis of the new Trinity uh, document, that sometimes it, it looks more like the Neffet is making the decisions. In this case, Neffet did not make the recommendation, but the government made a decision on the basis of health guidelines, which don't seem to have been actually the recommendations given from Neffet. So we'd say, well, is it possible, Gary, that this is just an, an example of politicians doing something? It's to look like they were doing something, to look like they were engaged in activity, but they were the target was the Catholic Church and therefore a soft target, a target that wasn't going to bite them back and was didn't really doesn't have a whole lot of power going on in the gaff. We've now reached a point where the bishops well, some of the bishops have kind of got fed up. It's worth pointing out, first of all, that the the organization of the Episcopacy in Ireland is obviously an all-Ireland affair. So, for example, you've got, say, the Diocese of Down and Connor, which is in the north of Ireland. Because of the change in the restrictions in the north of Ireland, this isn't an issue for them. They've gone ahead. But, and I'm saying off the top of my head, and there, I, may, I may well be missing, uh, the Diocese of Waterford Lismore, the Diocese of Elfin, the Diocese of Derry, although, which also takes in part of Donegal, Diocese of Rafaux, uh, the Diocese of Meath, and in breaking news now, the Archdiocese of Dublin have all given the go-ahead for their, their priests to go ahead with communions in parishes, communions and confirmations to go ahead. Now, Gary, in a tough stance, uh, as one of the, I think it was the Independent said, Minister Donnelly gave the church a blunt warning against going ahead, breaching the guidelines or the regulations on this subject, right? So there was a blunt, I love that, blunt. But then we, then we hear, we, can we consider for a moment the comment made by Michal McNamara TD, the independent TD for County Clare, who was previously, in a previous war life, he was a, uh, TD for the Labour Party. And just as a matter of comment here, nothing. I think both of us, Gary, have been, have been uh, talking to people recently who, on refle reflecting on the, the, the different politicians' uh, contributions during the pandemic, have remarked that Mion McNamara has been one of the most, if not the most effective uh, performer in the doll on the subject of COVID, that he has regularly been the man asking the questions and making the criticisms. Anyway, Michael McNamara says, there is no regulation or law that prohibits communions or confirmations, contrary, he says, to the Taoiseach's assertion. The Taoiseach had said that he accepts, this is, by the way, RT News reported, that the Taoiseach had said he accepts the restrictions around holy communions and confirmations is very difficult, 
but he warned against any, quote, unilateral breaching of regulations. And in response to that, Mihal says there is no regulation or law that prohibits communities or confirmations. The fact that the state broad I like this, the fact that the state broadcaster unquestionably spreads this disinformation is no longer surprising, but is ironic given its own campaign about disinformation. So as we stand, Gary, the, 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 what the word is, confirmations and communities will be going on in a number of dioceses. I suspect as this continues that the number of dioceses where this is happening will increase. Whether or not there are any actual regulations in vigour that would affect this rather than medical guidelines or medical advice is unclear. And even if we were to resort to the issue of simply what is the medical advice, it's not, it's not even clear that the medical advice is against holding confirmations or communions anyway. Yeah, I like to think I played some small part in why there are now no restrictions on it. <laughs> How is that, Gary? Well, there was a story I published a while ago in Gripped, and it got no uh, public response, and no other media sources picked it up. But I do know some people from some of the departments read it. And that story pointed out that some of the regulations that the um, the government had brought in, because they were really hastily throwing these things together, and they had expanded it because they had turned out that the previous one didn't make a lot of uh, religious things they had wanted to actually an offence to do. And I pointed out that the way they had written it, a wedding reception was legal, but the wedding ceremony was technically illegal. And wouldn't you know it, Michael, the next round of that uh, legislation just fixed that problem. Mm. You know, totally incidentally, not to accept that the government so badly wrote a piece of legislation that they made weddings illegal and then simply decided to ignore that because that was, you know, embarrassing. Or that they've done that many times with various things because the COVID legislations have been, by and large, total pieces of shit. Just, I mean, from a technical drafting perspective. Well, and we know there's been a lot of them. So many, so much stuff coming out of the door these days. And not just COVID stuff, but that the president is snowed under. I must say that is the first thing that uh, Higgins has done that I've approved of. Higgins comes out and says there's too many laws being passed too quickly. And the internal response of that to government is to take it seriously and to push back a load of stuff that they consider to be of secondary importance. And Michael, I take the view that the government that governs best is the government that governs least. So by that metric, Higgins has substantially helped governance in this country. I, I agree. And I do think that it, the, there was a fine comic moment where a government TD came out to defend the their record on this and said that, that the legislation that they had passed had been properly and rigorously examined and discussed and had been passed through the all with proper debate and care. Now, Gary, there have been very significant pieces of legislation over the last few years that we've talked about, which went through at the speed of light and almost in complete absence of any form of debate. All right, because that, that's horseshit. Like, the amount of stuff that's been guillotined or just forced through, uh, that there has been basically no debate on, or, you know, incredibly impactful things have been given an hour or two of debate and then just done. This has not been a good doll for rigorous examination of legislative options. It's been possibly the poorest I can ever remember. Well, now, we should be reasonable, I suppose, to a degree, and point out 
that it can't be easy responding to a global pandemic. You don't know what the hell you're doing a lot of the time. You're, you're working on information which is at best partial. You're trying to respond to a situation and do, you, do what you think is the best thing to do, but never with any great certainty. You're getting a certain amount of advice, but probably you're getting a degree of conflicting advice. And then you're having to manage the political reality as well. So as regards the, the COVID regulations, I would give them a certain amount of leeway. Some of the stuff I think is on the face of it just silly and incoherent. And it's their persistence with it has simply been twofold. One is the, the refusal you know, the, for politicians to ever say, you know what, that was a bad idea, let's get rid of it. And the other thing was partly they were doing this stuff knowing that it was either unnecessary or incoherent, but doing it because they wanted to be seen to be doing something. And they had a particular set of soft targets that they felt would be compliant and they could go after them without any getting significant pushback or, or indeed problems on the doorstep with, with voters who wouldn't really be agitated by this kind of thing. On the other stuff, the, 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 on the non-COVID stuff, yes, absolutely disastrous. I mean, some of it was really bad management of time. Some of it was just also dairy because they had a doll which was not interested in debating it. All the, a doll which was largely interested in just queuing up to vote for stuff because they felt it was, this was the virtue signal they wanted to send at the time. This one, this was the kind of people they wanted to see, be seen to be. So they didn't bother properly asking any questions about the nature of the legislation or what in or consequences it might have. And it's been pretty pathetic for that. Now, we should also point out, Gary, just before we, not all the clergy in Ireland are in favour of this. You will be surprised and shocked to discover that Father Tony Flannery, uh, the co-founder of the Association of Catholic Priests, ha is very disappointed by this decision by a number of the bishops, particularly by the Archbishop of Dublin, I think, and said that, you know, the decision to allow First Communions and Confirmations to go ahead will inevitably, inevitably, Gary, contribute to the spread of the Delta variant. I know a number of people have been asking me, and I, I, I don't know why they ask me these things, why would you ask me anything? But I think as a provocation, why is it, Gary, that when you're in church, you're, you still have, you're sitting in your pew, you still have to wear your mask. But say you're in a restaurant or you're in a pub, you have to wear your mask when you go to the Jacks or if you go outside or you're moving in the, between tables or something. When you're sitting down, you can take your mask off. What is peculiarly dangerous about a church? Or what is peculiarly safe about a restaurant to make the regulation different, I wonder? Well, restaurants you know, employ people and um, have lobbyists. Right. And that will significantly impact on the virulence of the Delta variant. And we know that. Yeah. I believe it's one of the uh, metrics which Neffet uses in its models. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. They call it the Friedman metric, I think. That's a good metric. Just on the, the Association of Catholic Priests, Tony Flannery, who was one of the founders of it, uh, is the brother of Frank Flannery. <laughs> okay. Not quite sure what that means, but I, I think I might guess. The other, just, I felt a, a little bit over the top, was... Um, Father Flannery's views, this is in the Irish Times, uh, were first reported in the Irish Times on, uh, on Monday. This is the story reports. The priest had accused the bishops of, quote, effectively lining up with the anti-vaxxers in challenging medical and state authority. Yeah, I think that's a little bit, a little bit over the top. 
you know. Well, that's the Protestants for you, though. Yeah. <laughs> but Father Flannery is a great man for talking about, you know, the necessity to talk, speak truth to power, Gary, you know. So, Michael, are you suggesting that he would have based on that personal doctrine? But you know the, the rehab group controversies when his brother took over 400,000 euro from consultancy work, which include lobbying while he himself was an employee of Finnegan? Did you say he told his brother that ethically that could be considered problematic? Or when his brother refused to appear before the Public Accounts Committee to explain exactly what he got paid for? Or when his brother's name appeared on the Panama Papers? Is he his brother's keeper? Well, I think if you want to speak true to power, and your brother is that power, yeah. I'm I'm peddling I'm peddling so far away from this conversation that there I am leaving tire tracks behind me, rubber tire. This this is a, a an elephant. Why do you do this to me? Why do you insist on doing these things to me? I like the uh, I like the growing sense of horror in your voice as it goes on. Yeah, as it goes on, as you pile up, Asa Pompeleon, I'm merely pointing out that this is a man who has not in the past been. Loath to uh, advocate for the idea of the church being, in fact, a challenge to the powerful and to the. St- but in this case, they are challenging medical and state authority. Now, surely the whole point. Now, what about medical? Now, we've, and we've already pointed out, I think, that it's not a, it's not absolutely clear what the medical uh, expert opinion on this particular thing was, but but certainly it is state authority. I find it bizarre that a priest should be saying that the bishops were, in a, in a bad way, that the bishops were challenging state authority. Well, why wouldn't they challenge state authority? Didn't, um, didn't Tony get declared a heretic? <laughs> it's, I'm, just, I'm just, you know, on the, the optics of that, if you have an association of Catholic priests, the founder of which has been threatened with excommunication by the Vatican, is to the best of my knowledge currently being stopped from ministering to people because of, you know, his heresy. Just like, it's a bit odd, isn't it? Well, heresy is a nasty word, Gary. Well, you tell that to the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith. Heresy is a nasty thing. Doctor uh, Father Flannery certainly holds views which would be regarded as heterodox. Um, views on, say, the bodily resurrection, the nature of the sacraments, the inerrancy of scripture, uh, that would not be, not be regarded as opinions that would normally be held by a priest of the, of the Catholic Church. Not being opinions held by the Catholic Church and therefore constituting heresy. Well, being opinions that are actively opposed by the Catholic Church. So just to, to clarify our position here, your, your, to clarify your position here, Gary, sorry, go on. I'm just pointing out that if you were the co-founder of a group called the Association for Catholic Priests and you're going to be put forward as a representative body of Catholic priests, it's somewhat weird, you know, when the doc- or the the, uh, the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith points out, you know, your views are heresy, which in average, you know, day-to-day affair, not a big deal, Michael. But you would think at that point, when you're leading a group of Catholic priests, you try and avoid the old heresy. Well, maybe you actually go out and embrace it because you feel the church has to change. The church is in need of reform and the and you're going to be the man to do it. Maybe Father Flannery is a Martin Luther or a, or a, or a Calvin for our day. Yeah, he's a Protestant. <laughs> I, I think there are Protestants who would be very uncomfortable with many of his... Uh, more heterodox opinions. I miss the Gnostics, you know that? 
All this talk of heresy, but you don't get any good Gnostics these days. I see you're wrong there, Gary. The, the world is full of Gnostics. Yeah, but they don't know they're Gnostics. This is also true. Yeah, I mean like a proper, you know, theologically solid Gnostic. You know, of all the things I've heard people lamenting the lack of and God in the good old days, the lack of a Gnostic, that is a new one on me. I mean, myself, I, I lament the fact that you can't get a decent scallion or how hard it is to get a nice cooked ham now. But you, Gary, you're lamenting the, the lack of a decent Gnostic. And I suppose, you know... Well, we've had very different lives. We've had very different lives. We're having very different lives. There you go. So, listen, all I would say on this is that anybody out there who's being confirmed or receiving their first Holy Communion this year, I wish them all the very best. I hope they have a lovely day and that the weather keeps fine for them. I mean, I'd even take some Sethianism at this point. I'm not even going to. No, no, no. <laughs> that is a reference designed to be enjoyed by like three people. I think I said to you before, one of my favourite group of heretics who were down talking heretics and I, I, I see them in the world today actually. There was a group in North Africa who um, were very anxious, Gary, to go on to the next world because the next world was obviously going to be better than this one and therefore were very fond of embracing the idea of martyrdom. So for example, if the, if the plague broke out in a village nearby, they would go to the, the, the plague village and get the clothes worn by plague victims and put them on that they themselves might get the plague and therefore be brought on. Because if for some reason, this, this was morally or ethically different to suicide. So what they would do as well is they would pop up in different, <laughs> they would pop up in, in front of the emperor and ask him his opinion on the Trinity or something like that. Or they would refuse, they'd refuse to sacrifice the emperor or they would attack soldiers coming around in the name of the Lord. They were eventually declared heretical on the principle that while martyrdom, if it's something that is called, you're called for, is a fine and noble thing, but it's not something you should embrace actively going out and looking for it. And I'm saying this, Gary, because it's very much my sense in this conversation that there, you and I have a, have a, a different perspective on martyrdom. I'm very much in the campaign, the, the camp which says, if it comes and I have to absolutely do it, Okay, but Gary, I, I feel like you're dragging me around, desperately trying to put plague clothes on me and make me the martyr that I don't want to be. Well, I believe we should promote the martyrdom of others. Well, yeah, indeed, you seem to be promoting mine, I, I feel, setting defamatory elephant traps in front of me regularly. Nothing I said was defamatory. Those are all statement of facts. Unless you're implying that Tony Flannery was involved in some way. <laughs> Stop it! And Michael, I've got to say, that Stop is not it. a statement I would come behind, and I'd disassociate myself from it, whatever your insinuation may be about the behaviour of that person. You are a horrible, horrible human being. <laughs> and I think it's time to end this broadcast, which is rat rapidly becoming a car crash, and wish uh, our listeners a good week, and we shall be back on Friday, when hopefully we shall not be talking about heresy. All the best.